I invite you to turn over now in your Bibles to the first chapter of the Gospel of John. Over the last two weeks, we've spent most of our time in the first 18 verses of John, which are often called the prologue to John's Gospel. But did you know that the Gospel of John also has an interesting ending as well, an ending that is typically called the epilogue. That's John 21, which I hope to come to uh, later in a a couple of weeks. But but for now, I think it's safe to say that if the book has a prologue and an epilogue, it's safe to say there must be some sort of structure to the whole book. To have those two things leads us to that conclusion. And that's where I want to begin today. I want to start by looking at how the whole book unfolds, at how John tells the story of Jesus. So, so here on the PowerPoint will be my best attempt at breaking down the main flow of the book. I'll lay it out, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. Okay? So you've got John 1, 1 to 18, we've been calling the prologue. Okay. Then John 1, 19, all the way to the end of chapter 12. Okay, that's the part we're going to look at today. Describe it as the signs. Then John 13, pretty much to the end of John 20. I'm just going to describe it as the hour. And then we look at this short passage, John 20, 30, and 31, which is the purpose of the book. And then you have the epilogue in John chapter 21. Okay, now I want to walk back through that a little bit more, okay? So we spent a good amount of time in the prologue the last two Sundays, so we have a feel about what it's about already. That's where John introduces us to Jesus. And, and I'll just rehearse the beginning and ending of the prologue. We, we might even memorize, have memorized the first verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, was fully God. It ends, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. Okay, after the prologue, we come to the main story of Jesus. And you'll see it's broken into two main parts. Chapter 1, verse 19, all the way to the end of chapter 12, and then chapters 13 to 20. Okay? Now, chapters 1 to 12... I've called the signs for short. Okay? It's often called the book of signs by writers, or we could call it something along the lines of the signs and the rejection of Jesus. The second main part is chapter 13 to 20, and I've called it simply the hour, or maybe more fully, the hour of glory. Many will call that the book of glory. And then you come to the purpose statement. And I want to I look at that again. In light of this, so, so this is John 20, verses 30 to 31. We, we did look at this a week or two ago, but just, just hear it again. This is the purpose of the book. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these ones are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So you hear that? Jesus did many other signs 
than the ones in the book, but John wrote about these signs so that you'd come to believe and find life through Jesus. And John's book, particularly the first half, is a book of signs, things that Jesus did to signify exactly who he is. And I just want to say one thing about those signs right now, because we're going to look at them today. They're not necessarily all miracles. Okay? But each sign that Jesus performs is supposed to point us in one way or another to his glory and to his true identity. Okay? And then after, uh, after, after that, you get to uh, the hour, the purpose, or, or after the purpose, I'm sorry. I, I forgot where it was. And then you get to the epilogue in John 21. Okay, so now what I want to do today is I want to walk, or kind of sprint, I guess, through the first half of John's gospel. Okay, this is one, one sermon. You might have saw it, John 1 to 12. Okay, but before we do that, uh, I, want to, I want to point out a few of the differences between the first 12 chapters and the second section, chapters 13 to 20, Okay. Because just about everybody agrees that the main story of John is in two parts. Okay. And, if, and if everybody agrees about that, there must be some clear reasons for that, like something clearly different between the two sections. So, so I want to I talk about that. Do you know what the differences are between John 1 to 12 and John 13 to 20? I'm going to highlight five differences okay, between the section of the signs and the section on the hour. Maybe you would know some of these. Maybe you, get some, maybe you wouldn't get any of them. Okay. One... It's called the book of signs for a good reason, because all the signs are in the first 12 chapters. No signs are in the other ones. Okay? The word sign shows up 16 times in chapters 1 to 12, and only one time in the rest of the book, and it's in the purpose statement when he says why he wrote the signs, about the signs. Okay? All right, then, another thing. John 1 to 12 covers three years of Jesus' ministry. John 13 to 20, how much? One week. Okay. And the vast majority of that is actually about one day. From Thursday night to Friday night of Passover week. Okay. Third, John 1 to 12, the hour has not come. John 13 through 20, the hour has come. What hour? Jesus is talking about the hour of glory. The time for which he came. The time when he would be lifted up on the cross. It's always in chapters 1 to 12. It's not yet. It's not yet. But once you get to chapter 13, do you know what you hear in the very first verse? John 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come. John 13 to 20 is all about the hour of glory. If you read the first 12 chapters, it's all public, public ministry uh, to the world. But then, if you read John 13 to 20, it's private ministry to his disciples. That's the majority of it. First, as he teaches them privately the the very night before he died. And then, as he shows his greatest act of love for them when he lays down his life on the cross for his friends. And then, there's a difference in the ending. 
of John 1 to 12 and John 13 to 20. John 1 to 12 ends with wide-scale rejection. But John 13 to 20 does not end that way. It ends instead with resurrection. Now, let's go back. Open your Bibles up. John chapter 1, for a walk, a fast-paced guided tour through the book of signs, John 1 to 12. To set the stage, go back to the prologue, John 1, verse 11. John 1, 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. I would suggest that is a summary of most of John 1 to 12. He came to his own, and his own people didn't want him. But let's see it for ourselves as the story unfolds. So by the end of the first chapter, the news about Jesus is already spreading. Jesus calls a man named Philip to follow him. We don't know a whole lot about Philip. Philip, though, goes out and finds a friend of his that he wants to introduce to Jesus, a man named Nathaniel. And I want to look at that story. John 1, verse 45. Philip, this is 145. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there's no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And that's the kickoff to the book of signs. That line, you will see greater things than these. Within days, Jesus is with his followers at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Weddings, big deal today, right? Right, guys? Premarital counseling, Tuesday night. Okay. Weddings were an even bigger deal at this time in Jewish communities. Weddings often lasted uh, up to a week. Okay? During this celebration, this particular one, turns out Jesus invited, and at this one, they ran out of wine, which, by the way, would have brought a lot of shame on the host of, of that wedding. So this sets the stage for Jesus to act. And I just want to take a look at what he does. Look at Chapter 2, verse 6. Now, chapter 2, 6. There were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, now draw some out, take it to the master of the feast. Maybe like a head waiter, master of ceremonies, something like that. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and didn't know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Canaan and Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, that's just the first of many signs that John will record. But notice a couple of things. The sign manifested the glory of Jesus. How? And two, his disciples believed in him. <clears throat> okay? But beyond that, we still have to ponder, what was the point of that sign? Signs signify things. They point us somewhere. 
what exactly did this sign signify? And that will be the question you have to ask repeatedly throughout John's gospel, because sometimes John will spell it out, like what you're supposed to take away from it. Other times, like in this story, he doesn't really say. You just have to think about it. Sometimes you can't be fully sure, but you're supposed to think about it. What was I supposed to see about Jesus from that? So here are some of my ponderings. In this story, did you notice that Jesus specifically chooses water jars that were used for Jewish ceremonial washing? And he transforms the water inside them into wine. Does that signify that something new and better is coming through Jesus than the Jewish ceremonial laws. I wonder. Or uh, did you notice the comment about how the quality of wine at weddings would gradually diminish? That's why the, the new wine shocked the guy, right? And he went and talked with the bridegroom about it. Okay? Does that signify something? about how with Jesus, the best is always yet to come. Like, or maybe how the joy Jesus gives doesn't diminish, but only grows, or something like that. See, you see, it's hard to be certain with these things, but that's the way John's writing. He doesn't always spell out what exactly the sign is signifying. You have to stop and think about it. But these stories are about signs, signs that point beyond themselves to the glory and the true identity of the one doing the sign. Now, there's some debate about what the next sign is in the Gospel of John, but it seems to me that the second sign in the book happens in the very next story, John chapter 2. This time, Jesus is in Jerusalem for Passover. When he's there, he goes into the temple, into his father's house, and what happens? Zeal for his father's house consumes him. Jesus sees how this place of prayer for all people is turned into a hideout for robbers. And so filled with righteous anger and great courage, Jesus drives out the animals and the money changers from the temple. This seems to be the second sign recorded. But what does it signify? Perhaps the authority of Jesus. Perhaps the passion of Jesus for true worship from pure hearts. John chapter 4. Jesus goes back to Cana in Galilee where he had turned the water into wine. This time when he comes in, an official comes to him desperate because the official's son is dying. Look at John 4 verse 49. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. John 4.50. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household this was now the second sign Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. I take that as the second sign done in Galilee, the third sign so far. And what does it signify? What are we supposed to see? 
I mean, in this case, Jesus has the power to heal with no contact. If Jesus would just speak the word, the broken could be restored. Jesus can rescue from the very brink of death. In the next chapter, John chapter 5, Jesus is back in Jerusalem. This time he crosses the path of a man who has been severely disabled for 38 years. But this time the man doesn't come to Jesus and ask him for something like in the last story. This time Jesus goes to that man and Jesus asks him a question. He asks the man directly, do you want to be healed? By the end of that story, that man gets up, picks up his mat, and walks away. This time, though, the result is more like what happened after Jesus did that stuff in the temple. Not everybody's happy. Why not? Because John makes sure to tell us that Jesus did that specifically on the Sabbath. And so the very same sign that led to great joy for that man led to anger and resentment by other people. This brings us to John chapter 6, where John records a story, one of the only stories that is in all four of the Gospels. It's the story of the feeding of the 5,000. The four signs so far have all been public too. But the fifth sign, the sheer size of it, of the crowd, makes it stand apart from the others. But I don't want to look at the story. I want to look at the response to the feeding of the 5,000. Look at what the people concluded from the sign. John 6, verse 14. When the, this is 6.14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And that sounds good, right? But then look at the next verse, verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. More and more, the results of the signs Jesus is doing are mixed at best. In fact, the very next day, the same crowds are coming back longing for more bread. And look at what Jesus says to them. John 6, verse 26. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs and like are picking up what the signs are putting down, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus already senses that they're not understanding the signs. They just want more bread. They just want to see something amazing. They're completely missing what the signs are signifying. And what's even more shocking is what they say a few verses later in John 6, verse 30. So they said to him, then what sign do you do so that we can see and believe? That is one day after he fed the 5,000 with a few loaves and fish. What sign are you going to do so we can see and believe? By my count, that's the fifth sign in the book of signs. At this point, John really begins to highlight the mixed responses to the signs. I'll just drop into chapter 7, a couple verses, to see it. Look at John 7. Verse 12, and there was much muttering about Jesus among the people. Some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Then jump down to verse, chapter 7, verse 31. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs 
than this man has done? But jump down to chapter 7, verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ going to come out of Galilee? Then look especially at verse 43. So there was a division among the people over him. This leads to the sixth sign in the Gospel of John, my favorite story in John's Gospel, found in John chapter 9. Jesus passes by a man who had been blind from birth. Jesus stops, spits on the ground, makes some mud, anoints the man with the mud, puts it on his eyes, sends him away to wash. The blind man goes, perhaps stumbling all the way, washes, and comes back seeing. And the religious leaders, who hate Jesus by this point, don't know what to do with this sign. They do not want to believe that Jesus could really have done this. So they question the guy. Are you really the guy? Are you really the guy? They go to the parents. Is that really the guy? And listen to the division even among the Pharisees because they don't know what to do with this one. Verse 16, John 9, 16. Some of the Pharisees said, this man's not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath because Jesus had done that on Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who's a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. And I, and I love the formerly blind guy in this story. Listen to the interaction. Starting in verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know this man's a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we're disciples of Moses. We know God spoke to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. The man answered, why, that's an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone's a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin. Would you teach us? And they cast him out. The signs of Jesus are getting greater and greater, harder and harder to deny. At the same time, the divisions over Jesus are getting deeper and deeper. And this all leads to the seventh and final sign in the Gospel of John, in the Book of Signs. <clears throat> it's the story that Jesus told in John chapter 11, a story that only John tells. It's the story of Jesus' dear friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Word comes to Jesus from Mary and Martha that Lazarus, his dear friend, is extremely sick. They're obviously begging Jesus to come right away and help him. And you would think that Jesus would go, but he does not go. He intentionally stays away. So that by the time Jesus arrives, Lazarus has been dead four days. Martha comes first out to Jesus and says, Lord, if you had been here, 
my brother would not have died. Not long after, Mary comes out and says the exact same thing to Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Look at Jesus' response to this. John 11, verse 33. John eleven thirty-three. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible, one of the most jarring. Jesus wept. Even as Jesus is weeping, though, there's division over him. Some say, look at how he loved him. Others say, couldn't the guy who opened the eyes of the blind have done something? The stage is now set for the seventh and greatest sign in the book of signs. Verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave. A stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. He's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew you always hear me, but I say this on on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, hands and feet bound with linen straps, his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said said to them, unbind him and let him go. What does that sign signify about Jesus? What is it pointing us to? How does it reveal the glory and the true identity of Jesus? But what was the response to even this greatest sign? Look at verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. And if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And so skip down to verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And that's what sets the stage for part two of the Gospel of John, what I call the hour or the hour of glory. But John doesn't take us immediately to that part of the book. Instead, he first wants to give his own summary of what he saw happen during those years. This is how John chapter 12 ends. Look at John chapter 12, verse 37. This is the Apostle John's own summary of those three years. 1237. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Apparently, seeing is not always believing. 
But John goes on to explain in that text that this very rejection was part of God's plan. In fact, the rejection itself was a fulfillment of the prophecies of Isaiah. So the book of signs ends with large-scale, widespread rejection and unbelief. He came unto his own, and his own people didn't want him. Though he had done so many signs in front of them, they still did not believe. But I also don't want us to miss what John adds in John 12, verses 42 and 43. Look at John 12, verses 42 and 43. These verses have stood out to me this week. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, did believe in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they didn't confess it so that they wouldn't be put out of the synagogues because they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. You see, most people directly rejected Jesus. They didn't want him or welcome him. Some, though, did truly believe and fully embrace him. But John ends the first half of the book by drawing our attention to a third response. Many authorities actually did believe in Jesus, but they were too afraid to identify with him. They would not confess their faith publicly. And John points out why, and his words are sharp and perhaps painful to hear of why they wouldn't. It was because they loved the glory that comes from human beings more than the glory that comes from God. Each of the signs in John 1 to 12 is pointing us or pushing us to ask questions like, what do I really think about Jesus? What do you think? What have you seen from the signs about the glory and the identity of Jesus? But that's not the only theme running through those chapters. It's not just about the signs. Underneath, underneath it all is this growing theme of rejection. The results of the signs were mixed from the very beginning. And John makes it very clear by the end of this section, John chapter 12, that even after Jesus had done all these signs, most people outright rejected him. And that leads me to a few closing comments for today. One, I want to think about our own evangelism. I hope, well, I hope we share the gospel. Start there. But I also hope that when we share the gospel about Jesus, that the people we share with it, share it with, eagerly and fully embrace it. That's what I hope. That's what we pray for, right? And yet, we need to come to grips with this message from the Gospel of John the very hard message that rejection is going to happen. In fact, rejection is not the exception. It is the norm. Do we realize that? Have we come to grips with that? 
Far more people rejected Jesus than embraced him. And far more people will reject the message about Jesus than truly embrace it. I am not, by this, encouraging us to despair or to give up. Far from that. I say this so we won't grow weary or give up when we experience much rejection. We need to understand that the mission we've been given by Jesus, though glorious, is not glamorous. It often entails rejection. You like that? It's hard. But that's not all that happens, right? And so we pray, and we sow, and we pray, and we sow. Rejection may be the norm, but it's not the whole story. And I think back to the prologue. He came to his own, and his own people would not receive him. But to all who did, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. We ought to be both realistic and optimistic about evangelism. And and on this, I love Paul's perspective about his own ministry. He said in 2 Corinthians, to some, to some people, probably to most people, we are an aroma, a smell of death leading to death. We stink to most people. But to others, we are an aroma of life leading to life. And who is equal to such a task? And then lastly, I have been deeply challenged by how the book of signs ends. How John highlights a third response to Jesus that he witnessed so often throughout his life. It was the response of half-hearted belief. The sort of belief that longed to be secret. The kind of faith that wanted Jesus without the cost. Wanted him without the cross. A kind that wanted Jesus and the praise of men. We must ask ourselves more and more in this society, whose honor will we seek? Are we willing to step out in courage in this city, in this era, and to fully and publicly identify with Jesus? When will that next moment of decision come for you? When you're faced with that opportunity, it may be this afternoon, it may be tomorrow as you enter your workplace, or as soon as you enter the doors of your school. But for all of us, those moments are coming. When our willingness to publicly identify with Jesus will be put to the test. In those moments, we should come back to a text like this and think, whose praise do I really want? The praise that comes from men or the praise that comes from God. May God help us. Let's pray.
Lord, thank you for showing us Jesus, his glory, his identity, his beauty, his work through the signs in the Gospel of John. Help us to interpret them and see what they're pointing us to. Please deepen our faith. And Lord, help us as well to not grow weary in the face of rejection. And also grant us courage, Lord. That we would not be those who want Jesus, but only in secret. Only in the comfortable places. Lord, would you grant us courage to identify fully with our Lord who died rose, and is coming again. We pray this in his name. Amen.